You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Adrienne Scheck. Uh, she's the author of Cancer and the Ketogenic Diet. Uh, she's a PhD, a senior research scientist in the Institute of Molecular Medicine at Phoenix Children's Research Institute, uh, Phoenix Children's Hospital, and a research asso- associate professor at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Phoenix. She's also an adjunct professor at Arizona State University and an associate investigator in the cancer biology program at the University of Arizona. And uh, there are many more accolades after that. So before I, I, I bungle them, I uh, want to introduce you, Adrian. Thanks for coming. Uh, thank you. It's uh, good to be on the show. Yeah, and just for listeners, I, I saw Adrian speak at the uh, Metabolic Health Summit, which uh, happened about a month ago in California. And, uh, you know, that, that made me uh, more interested, even even more interested in wanting to speak to her. So, Adrian, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, so tell me about um, your work, why the focus on cancer and why the focus on, uh, you know, ketogenic diets as well. I've been a cancer researcher for um, a very long time, uh, always been interested in cancer. And um, I actually switched my interest to include the ketogenic diet uh, maybe nine years ago, something like that, uh, because Dr. Zhang Ro, who is an international expert in the ketogenic diet for epilepsy, uh, he his lab was on the same floor as mine, and he's a clinician and a scientist, and he's excellent at both. And we started chatting in the elevator lobby, and he said, hey, would you like to try this in brain tumors? Uh, there's this guy in Boston doing it, and he meant Dr. Tom Seyfried, who's really sort of in many ways the father of this whole thing, I think, in my opinion. Hmm. And I said, sure, let's give it a shot. So we kind of did a pilot experiment in collaboration. He actually had a, a person that was looking for a, a short time in the lab, so he we put that person in my lab and we tried it and the results were so good that I honestly kind of changed the direction of my lab in many ways to really start to study this. So now it's the main focus of my lab is uh, ketones, the ketogenic diet with brain tumors. And what um, the person that, uh, you know, underwent the experiment, what kind of cancer do they have? What did they do? And what were some of the effects? Um, Originally, it wasn't a person. Originally, we were doing this in cell culture. So we had cells that were growing in the lab that were from the fourth tumor that an individual patient had. It was an extremely aggressive cell line. It um, it tended to make its own growth factor, so it tended to sort of feed itself. So it was a uh, really a pretty pretty aggressive cell line, and um, we tested the ketones in that cell line. So what we did was we basically just looked at how fast the cells grew by themselves how fast the cells grew when we added ketones. And for this, we added uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. 
And then this patient had been treated with a chemotherapy called BCNU or carmistine. That was a that was the, uh, the chemo of choice back when this patient um, was alive. So we used we tried that on these cells, and then we tried the two together, ketones plus BH plus uh, BCNU. And the reason I did that was because I knew that if we didn't find that that uh, ketones helped with the standard of care, it would really probably never get into a patient. And it turned out that this particular experiment the results were really good. The ketones really enhanced the activity of the chemotherapy. And the important thing, to, one of the important things to me was we did this without dropping glucose at all. So these were in cells that were grown in high glucose. So that started to suggest to me that while I believe the glucose is very important, that, that it's also the ketones that have their own utility. And the fact that they enhanced chemotherapy is really where we started to continue the work, and we started to look at it with radiation, and and started to find things that way. So, what, what's your thoughts or your experimental evidence that uh, had the ketones affect someone when they're undergoing chemotherapy or radiation? What are they doing to the cells? You know, the the normal cells versus the cancer cells. Um, that's a lot of of basic research, so I don't want anybody to think that we know this in people for sure. What uh, our, our kind of working hypothesis at the moment, and we're, we're just finishing up a paper, uh, the first paper on this, is based on animal studies in mice and based on cell culture. So it's not direct evidence in people yet. But it seems like the ketone, beta-hydroxybutyrate, acts as an epigenetic modifier. So epigenetics is very popular these days, and it's really a way that the cells can change the way they use their genes without necessarily changing the genes themselves. And it turns out that one of the epigenetic modifications that's important is something called the histone deacetylase or HDAC inhibitors. And people are actually looking at pharmaceutical HDAC inhibitors as a cancer therapy. And what we and others have found is that uh, the ketone beta hydroxybutyrate acts as an HDAC inhibitor. So our thought is that it's uh, probably changing the expression or the use of a whole bunch of genes and potentially changing how well DNA damage is repaired. So radiation and the chemotherapy that's used in brain tumors both damage DNA. So if you can reduce the repair of that damage in the tumor cells, you're going to make those cells more sensitive to these therapies. And that's what we think is happening. When you, um, do you know if there's a difference between someone, um, you know, creating ketones because of their diet versus taking exogenous ketones? Has that been looked Honestly, at? I don't. Uh, we haven't looked at that, and um, I know Dr. Dom D'Agostino and and Dr. Angela Poff. Angela, Dr. Poff is the one that that um, does most of the cancer work, and she's done some very nice work looking at various exogenous ketones. It's something I would like to try specifically for radiation sensitization, but there's a number of things that are different. Uh, one of the differences is that exogenous ketones raise ketone levels for a short period of time, very short, few hours, and then they come back down. Uh, so we don't know whether you need that higher level of ketones all the time to see some of these effects or not. We don't know how long the ketones have to be high. We don't even know how high they have to be. So there's, there's a lot that is not known about exogenous ketones in terms of using them with therapy. And it is something that we plan to investigate, uh, specifically using our mouse models as well as uh, looking at it in, in um, cell culture. When we add it in cell culture, we know they last for a few days, and it definitely enhances radiation and chemo in cell culture. So I can, and it definitely enhances it in animals when we use the full diet. We've published that work, 
but whether or not giving the animal exogenous ketones enhances therapy is something that we haven't quite looked at yet. What, um, do you think that it causes an epigenetic change because uh, the body would only go through that, I guess, in response to, uh, you know, obviously environmental conditions that forced an alteration of the diet, you know, with very little or no carbs, and therefore that's why the, the organism responds epigenetically? It's a great question, and I honestly don't know. I'm kind of out of my league on that one, and I'm not sure that anybody really knows that. A lot about ketones and the ketogenic diet, I think, is um, really still being uh, investigated, and it's a surprise considering, how, <clears throat> excuse me, considering how long it's been used for epilepsy. It's a little bit of a surprise, but the the actual mechanisms through which it works is still not completely clear, even in epilepsy, let alone in cancer. And I think one of the reasons is because when you have these epigenetic changes, so many things in the cells change. So why the ketones act as epigenetic modifiers, I honestly don't know. And I, I'm not sure if anybody really has a, a solid answer for that one. I know I don't. <laughs> well, does epigenetic modification appear to happen very rapidly or does it require a, a, you know, a period of weeks, months of continual exposure to something or a continual change in the conditions? When we do this in cell culture, we definitely see the difference in 24 hours. We, uh, we don't see as much of a change after one hour. We haven't done the time periods in between those two, but we, we do plan to. But certainly by one day of adding ketones to cells in, in culture, and again, this is without dropping the glucose, uh, you see some of these changes. Oh, I didn't catch that. So this is without dropping glucose. So the cells will be in an environment of ketones and plenty of glucose as well? Yes. When when we grow the cells in culture, normal culture media is actually very high in glucose, far higher than a person is. And um, when we first started doing these experiments, we purposely did not alter the glucose because we kind of wanted to see what's going on from the ketones alone. And then at some point, we'll be doing some glucose experiments, just changing glucose and seeing what's happening in the cells. But we really wanted to see what were the effects of the ketones, irrespective of the effects of the glucose in the cells that were growing in the lab. So we're seeing all these all the changes that we've seen in the animals when we put them on a ketogenic diet, meaning the sensitization to radiation, things like that, uh, and a, a slight slowing of growth of the tumor even, even on their own. We're seeing those things in cells grown in culture in the absence of reduced glucose. Well, so yeah, what happens when you have uh, lower glucose and ketones present around the cells? Have you done that comparison? We haven't done it yet. Uh, I have a small lab and, and we have to bring in all the money to do all the experiments. So we're kind of, we sort of prioritize what we want to try to figure out first. It's absolutely on the list of things that we will be doing. We will be looking at what happens when we drop glucose. But for now, we're kind of doing everything to try to get the mechanisms in regular cell culture media, which is high glucose. And then we'll basically repeat a lot of these things, adding in the reduced glucose. But for now, we're really looking at trying to drill down on the ketones by themselves. Yeah, and in an environment of ketones and high glucose, that's probably, I mean, I'm just speculating, but that's probably what would happen when you take exogenous ketones, you know, and you either did or didn't alter your diet. You'd have that condition with uh, ketones and, and higher levels of glucose. So if you if you figure out, you know, if it's less than 24 hours, like you said, for the cells to um, to achieve this protected state or for an effect to happen, you know, maybe someone that goes to get radiation or chemo, maybe they can dose themselves with exogenous ketones multiple times 
you know, 12 hours before, let's say, and maybe that would have an effect. Again, it's all just speculation. But, but that's that's an excellent speculation. It's exactly what we want to do. One thing I one thing I will mention is that uh, Dr. Angela Poth has has found that when you give an animal exogenous ketones, they do see a slight reduction in blood glucose even without changing the food. And I'm not really sure why that happens, but they are seeing that there is a slight reduction in glucose just from adding exogenous ketones. But to go back to your comment, um, because I am now looking at all this in pediatric tumors, so I've I've moved to Phoenix Children's Hospital, so my work is is specifically on the kids, one of the things that I absolutely plan to test in the near future, and I've, I've actually been here less than a year, but as soon as we get some of the animal experiments going, we want to test that because it would be wonderful if we could sensitize the tumors to radiation uh, just by having the kids drink some exogenous ketones, for example, or, or uh, getting an IV of exogenous ketones for the kids where they're having trouble, you know, getting them on a diet. All right. So you said you're, you're focusing on uh, pediatric tumors now. So you said in the next year or so, what, uh, what do you hope to experiment with? Uh, I hope to see whether the things that we have found in the cells that are models for adult malignant brain tumors, if they also happen in some of these pediatric brain tumors. So we're particularly looking at uh, brain tumors uh, that are very deadly in children. And we've got some cells from this, this, these types of tumors, and they're very different types of tumors. So at a molecular level, they're different. So we really want to see whether this is going to, to possibly help inhibit the growth of those tumors or sensitize them to therapy. Because to be honest, I'm working with an awesome MD named uh, Dr. She's actually an MD PhD, Dr. Cynthia Wetmore. And um, the Phoenix Children's Hospital has all the infrastructure it needs to put kids on the, the uh, ketogenic diet because they're doing it for epilepsy. So it would be wonderful to extend this to the brain tumors if, if it turns out that uh, ketones or the ketogenic diet sensitize these tumors to radiation also, we might be able to uh, affect better efficacy in these kids, possibly drop the dose. Um, radiation is sort of a last resort for children with brain tumors because it's so damaging to the brain. So anything we can do to, to help reduce side effects, drop the dose, anything like that would be huge. So those are sort of our goals is does this work in pediatric brain tumors the way we've shown, we and others have shown it works in adult tumors. And then if so, uh, can it be used to possibly get a better result in these kids? And can you talk a little bit about the mechanism and what histone deacetylation is and does and how it affects the DNA? Um, I can try. It's a little hard without pictures, but I'll try. So we all think of DNA as a, sort of a twisted ladder. You know, that's what the DNA molecule itself looks like. But in fact, that's not what it is. What DNA is when it's in the cell is it's wrapped around proteins called histones. So it looks uh, almost more like a pearls, pearls on a string than it does that twisted ladder picture that we all have in our heads when we talk about DNA. And there's a lot of different modifications that can happen on this DNA. You can add um, different chemical modifications that change whether or not that DNA is going to be easily accessed to be read by the cell to make RNA and proteins, or if it's going to be very tightly uh, coiled up so that it's harder to get at. And when it's really tightly coiled up and it's harder to get at, it also can be more resistant to things like radiation and chemotherapy. So by changing the acetylation on the DNA or changing the methylation on the DNA, you're changing, and these are just two little chemical groups that get stuck on the DNA and they can also get stuck on the histones. 
so the acetylation is actually stuck on the, the histones, which is what the DNA is wrapped around. So what you're doing is you're, you're changing whether that DNA is tightly wrapped around these little balls of histone or not. So that changes whether or not they're more or less susceptible to damage, and it changes whether genes are turned on and turned off. So without a picture, that's kind of the probably the best I can do. But basically, lots of genes can get changed that way. Uh, the expression of lots of genes can get changed that way. And it's to a large extent, that's a normal part of the way our cells regulate things. It's just in cancers, they tend to be um, aberrant or screwed up. Well, what happens when um, you know a cell gets irradiated or you know chemotherapy attacks it? What is it? Does it in, in an effort to repair itself? Does the DNA, I guess, separate more to allow for um, repair mechanisms to happen, and then it closes back up once the repairs are done? Well, the the main thing that happens is uh, a bunch of proteins are turned on, and they find the places in the DNA that are damaged, and they stick there, and that basically acts as a signal for all of the proteins that are involved in repairing DNA, and there's a whole bunch of them depending on the type of damage and things, but those signals basically are, are like standing there telling the other proteins, hey guys, come on over here, we need this DNA repaired. So it's more, um, it's more that, uh, that the DNA can then be repaired. I don't know that it necessarily um, opens up or closes up specifically as much as it's turning those repair proteins on or off. So what does uh, histone deacetylase do? Like, what's the mechanism by which it affects DNA? It takes the acetyl groups off the histone, and that allows the, um, the DNA wrapped around the, the histones to open up a little bit. I don't, I'm not sure that I could, I could even describe the chemical mechanism, to be honest. Okay, but it's, that's, that's a fair description. Okay. So um, a histone deacetylase inhibitor would inhibit that from happening, I guess, and keep the DNA yeah. uh, in an unopened state. Yeah. And, and why would um, why does this affect cancer cells differently from regular body cells? Don't know. Cancer cells are different in so many ways. I really don't know. Is there any clues or thoughts as to why? Uh, not that I'm aware of, to be honest. There might be for people who are uh, experts in in looking at the acetylation in cancer versus normal cells, but I'm I'm honestly not not familiar with it. In what area is your specific? Um, your work specifically then would look at what modulating ketone diets, uh, ketogenic diets, in order to achieve the best effect on tumors, or you know, what's your uh, particular focus right now? My focus right now is, is uh, as I said before, just determining whether ketones in cell culture and the ketogenic diet in animal models affect uh, some of these pediatric tumors the same way they affect the adult tumors, and then looking at how it might be doing that with respect to what genes are being turned on or turned off, um, and also what what other epigenetic changes are happening. Do you think that the epigenetic changes are piling up over time? You know, within the first 24 hours, let's say certain things happen, and then within a week, more things happen, and a month, more things happen. Do you see a, an accumulation of benefit, or is it just benefit, no benefit? Uh, we really haven't seen where it's more over long term. Certainly, over a couple of days, you can you can see a, a slight increase in things happening. But over long term, we we usually don't do these experiments long term. Just technically, it's hard to do the cell some of these cell experiments for weeks or months. In the animal model, we basically have kept the animals on the ketogenic diet the whole time, uh, except for the very first experiment we did with radiation, which was published in 2012, where we 
gave the animals the ketogenic diet plus radiation. And after, so nine of 11 animals, the tumors disappeared and they were bioluminescent. So we could actually image them and see whether the tumor was there or not. And after about 100 days, when we were no longer seeing the tumors, we put them back on standard diet for 200 days and the tumors didn't come back. So whatever happened in those animals for those first 100 days or so um, made a huge difference. Now, that was before we even knew about the epigenetic changes. So we, we didn't get a chance to look at the epigenetic changes and things like that. That was more sort of a phenomenological kind of thing. It's like, here's the animals. They're on the, the ketogenic diet. The tumor started growing, then it disappeared, then it didn't come back. So would that happen in people? Honestly, I don't know. Uh, some of the physicians that I've spoken to when I've gone to meetings have said that when they've had patients that were just on the ketogenic diet alone, when they went off, the tumor started to grow again. There are some instances, I'm sure, that that didn't happen. I don't know that people have done a, a real test of the ketogenic diet plus radiation where they see the tumor disappear the way we did in the mice. Uh, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence involved in the ketogenic diet, but the clinical trials are, are not um, mature enough to really answer some of these questions. You're asking great questions, but we don't necessarily have the answers yet. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm free to speculate because I'm not doing a, uh, a clinical trial. That's why I figured I'd ask you. So, okay. um, <laughs> uh, do you, so is another proposed mechanism that perhaps the ketones are being used as fuel and the uh, the cancer cells can't readily use ketones as fuel while normal cells can? Uh, that, that was the original theory with the ketogenic diet is that the cancer cells cannot use ketones, but normal cells can. In fact, normal cells, particularly the normal cells in your brain, sort of preferentially use ketones. They love ketones. Um, whether or not the tumor cells can or can't use the ketones as an energy source, the dogma is that they cannot. There are some studies that suggest maybe they can. Uh, some cancers, not all. Uh, I think depending on who you ask, some people will tell you that they absolutely can't use the ketones as energy. Some people will say, well, the jury's still a little bit out on that. One of the things about tumors is that they are very, very heterogeneous. That's a fancy word for a different genetics. So if you look at 10 people's tumors or 10 cell lines, even if it's the same diagnosis, at a genetic level, they are different. That, and if they're different at the genetic level, meaning what genes they have, what genes they're turning on, turning off, using, if they're different at that level, then they're also different in terms of what they are capable of physically doing. So that's called the phenotype. So for example, there's a study that in a different type of brain tumor animal model, it's in a rat actually, that these cells are using ketones. Are they using them to make energy effectively? I'm not sure. We have, have people found this in mouse models? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, we're actually starting an imaging experiment with um, a collaborator of mine where we're going to, going to use PET scans, positron emission tomography, where you can look at glucose utilization and things in a living animal. And we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at some biochemistry using a special type of MRI to see if we can figure out whether or not in our model where the ketones absolute, the ketogenic diet absolutely slowed the growth of the tumor, absolutely made radiation work better, in that particular model, what's happening with the ketones in terms of, you know, are we seeing differences in glucose utilization in the tumors? Are we seeing differences in the biochemistry? So we're doing that specifically to answer that question, is, is can ketones be used by these cells or not? Uh, most people would say they can't be. 
but not everybody. Are you able to mark cells and or cancer cells and then observe how they're epigenetically changing in response to different uh, stresses, you know, chemo, radiation, ketones, et cetera? I mean, I know um, we're sequencing tumors and stuff, for instance, and you said they're heterogeneous. You know, they're not uniform, yeah. but um, what about epigenetically? Yeah. We're looking at them that way. Epigenetics, it's the same. Technically, it's exactly the same. But the heterogeneity of these cells is also going to mean that they're, they're heterogeneous with respect to their epigenetic markers and things. So with sequencing tumors, what happens is you take a chunk of the tissue and you grind it up and you sequence it and you are essentially getting pretty much an average to a large extent. What some people are doing and what we actually are just getting ready to start is to do something pretty cool. We just got this instrument called Droplet Digital PCR. What that lets you do is really look at um, kind of a, at an individual cell level about what's going on. And we haven't even gotten the training yet. They just finished installing it. But what you can do with that is every sample, instead of getting one answer that's an average, it actually breaks the sample up into approximately 20,000 separate samples. And there's software to, to do the analysis and stuff, of course. So that's actually, I think, going to get us a lot closer to the question you're asking about um, what's happening. Are the different cells reacting differently or the same, either at a genetic or an epigenetic level? Because we'll, be, we'll actually be able to take those samples and parse them out into 20,000 samples. And I think that's, that's where we're going to actually be able to start to answer some of the questions you're asking. Because like I said, they're great questions. They're questions we've had, but technically, uh, it's only now that we actually are going to have the instrumentation to do it. And the instrumentation to do it really hasn't been available for all that long either. So there's huge changes in technology that's going to let us start to answer some of these questions. Um, I guess then we could also elucidate the structure of tumors as well, because you could deliberately sample from different parts of it very finely, and you could see the evolution of the structure radially outwards, or spherically outwards from the center. People have done that. That's That's been published, that people have actually taken multiple multiple samples from different regions of the tumor, and this has been done for quite a while in, in various different ways, where you can actually kind of see to some extent what's happening. Because the thing with tumors is that every time a tumor cell divides, it basically shuffles its genetics to some extent. It's very genetically unstable. So sometimes you can actually see which cells might have come from which cells, because you'll see certain identifiable uh, genetic damage and you'll see it in, in cells later on that also have other changes. So a lot of that's actually being done. And one of the, um, one of the issues, one of the problems in, in my mind of, of the people doing personalized medicine was they'll take a single sample from a tumor and then sequence it or whatever and then say, okay, here's the therapy that's going to work, is unless you take multiple biopsies from different regions, you've only just determined what therapy is going to work on that one region, not necessarily on the whole tumor. So I think the more we get into looking at the tumor as a whole, the better all of that is going to get. And where we're going now with some of the very sensitive techniques like droplet digital PCR, tumors tend to shed DNA into the bloodstream. So now people are looking at what they call liquid biopsies, which is where you could take the blood and start to look at what the DNA looks like and also how much is there of the tumor DNA. So there's a lot of questions now that are, are starting to be asked that way. It's not that easy to go into a person's head multiple times to get multiple samples. Uh, you either do multiple samples at the first time, or uh, and then, then you can't just go back in, obviously. You've got to, for any tumor, you kind of have to have a reason to do surgery. So this whole liquid biopsy thing, I think, is also going to 
really change a lot of what we what we think about what's going on. Well, that's true. Do you, do you think, you know, I've heard tumors can come from a single cell or they come from a single cell. Do you, do you think that's true based on the heterogeneous nature of, of tumors or do they come from multiple uh, multiple areas in, you know, in a part of the body? Uh, I think in general, most tumors probably arise in one place. So if you've got tumors in multiple areas of the body, uh, that's generally metastatic tumors. And metastatic tumors are tumors where the cells have broken off from the main tumor gotten into a transport system, for example, the blood or the lymph, gone someplace else, and been able to set up housekeeping someplace else. And it's well known that, that multiple cells are in, many, many, many cells are in the bloodstream of a person with, with cancer. Most of those can't successfully set up metastatic tumors. A small percentage can. So that's where a lot of these metastases come from. But the vast majority of the time, I think that the tumors in various parts of the body came from one original tumor. Most of the time they can find the primary, sometimes they can't. But even within the primary, do you think that that arises from a single cell mutating or does it arise differently? Uh, this is just my opinion because, you, um, again, you can get arguments both ways, but I'm, I'm thinking it probably arises from a single cell. That when a single cell is damaged somehow to make it act like a cancer cell, and then as it divides, it'll change genetically. But I don't know that you necessarily get multiple cells close to each other being damaged at the same time. I think it's it's more likely that it's just a, a one cell, unless that person has some sort of genetic predisposition. Predisposition is the wrong word. Some sort of genetic disease that makes them very likely to get cancer because there's some problem in their genes with respect to repair or something. And that's very, very rare. So I think the vast majority of the time, yes, my personal opinion is that, that tumors arise from one cell. Yeah, but has anyone tried to calculate the mathematic, you know, um, it, it seems like such a low probability for that to happen, for one cell to, you know, to change in just the right way and then to propagate and become hundreds of thousands of cells and millions of cells. It just seems so unlikely. I mean, has anyone calculated the likelihood of such a thing? Oh, yeah. There's been lots and lots of papers on, on those calculations and the math, I have to admit, is way above my head. So you can, you can easily do a search on that sort of thing, and, and you can find the mathematics involved in whether or not it, you know, a tumor might have arisen from one cell or, or multiple cells. I'm sure that's all out there. I, I know there are plenty of, of papers that do those sorts of mathematical calculations. Have, has anyone been able to find what they think is uh, cell number one that started it all? No. No, the technology is definitely not to that point. Well, are you able to see, like you said, if a tumor metastasizes, uh, people can find the original one, and I guess they do so by looking at the uh, the genetics of the tumors that are have, have metastasized, and they can tell it came from, you know, a certain one that was the original. Perhaps they could do the same within within the original and find the original of the original. As you said, if it keeps mutating no. over time, we may be able to no, trace back. Now, the way that the way the metastatic stuff is, is generally done is when a tumor is found, the pathologist will look at it, and the pathologist can usually figure out what type of tumor it is. So, for example, uh, a number of different types of tumors metastasize to the brain. So, I had a neighbor, in fact, uh, many years ago that she all of a sudden had a seizure and went to the hospital, and they found a brain tumor. But when they look at the tissue, they say, wait a minute, this is not a brain tumor. This didn't start in the brain. This tissue looks like lung cancer. So 
Sure enough, when they scanned her lungs, they were able to find something. But it's because the tissue actually looks different, and there are markers on the tissue. There's proteins on the tissue that they can actually stain for to say, yes, this tumor most likely came from a lung or most likely came from a breast or most likely came from something else. And it's, it's really based on what the tissue looks like. Uh, occasionally, they'll look for a specific gene that's known to be involved in a particular uh, cancer. But more often than not, the pathologist is, is the one who can actually pick up on this. And now we're getting more and more information about the genetics so that there are genetic tests that, that can be done. But for many, many, many years when the genetics weren't available, it was the pathologist looking at it that says, this does not look like a brain tumor. This actually looks like lung cancer, for example. Yeah, but that's why I was wondering if you, you know, if you have just one tumor and it hasn't metastasized, you know, it's the original one, and you're looking at its structure, and you, I guess you would think maybe the stuff in the, the innermost part is the original stuff. Perhaps you could see the, the evolution of it as the tumor grows and how it changes, and then maybe trace it back to uh, close to its original state. Um, I think you can see evolution to some extent of the tumor cells, but we're not even close to technically being able to go back and say this was the original cell. Yeah, I just wonder if we'd be able to do that or even get close. Or do you think that's still a long way off to be able to do something like that? I think that's probably a long way off. Because that, yeah, remember that one, which, that one original that, cell doesn't necessarily sit still. When it divides, it changes. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not like one cell stays still and another cell is made from that one cell. Stay still meaning genetically in terms of changing. One cell becomes two cells, and those the two cells that it becomes are different from the original cell very often. Yeah, I just wonder what's what's the start of it. You know, it, certain um, certain mutations obviously are you know will be cleared up by the body. I'm sure they happen all the time, but these for some reason aren't. So I wonder how early on the uh, immune suppression happens or the masking of the uh, the cancer cell, and I wonder how how early you know some of the other changes happen and what the changes are that cause this. You know, I guess the way to put it is tremendous success. Honestly, I, I don't know exactly when it happens, and I'm willing to bet that depending on the tumor type and the genetics of that particular tumor, a lot of those things are going to happen at, at different times. Uh, tumors are just, it's so hard to pin down because they tend to be so different because of that heterogeneity. And I, I don't know that anybody is, has been able to trace back exactly when certain things happen in the evolution of a tumor. Yeah, this thing would be really useful knowledge if we could figure that out. Because, it's, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's a bad example of it, but tumors are unbelievably successful. You know, cancer is unbelievably successful. It, it's resistant to so many things that can change. I mean, it's just, I guess that's how I characterize it, you know, even though it's a terrible thing. So I guess there's got to be tremendous knowledge, and how does it do it, you know? Uh, I agree. One of the things that, that I kind of think of when I think about how cancers sort of do it, is because they're so genetically unstable, their Darwinism speeded up. So Darwin was survival of the fittest. So in, in Darwin's world, of course, it takes many, many, many hundreds of years to, for these changes to happen. But in tumor cells, because they're dividing so quickly, if they're actually shuffling their genetics a little bit every week or every few days or however fast they're growing, that whole survival of the fittest is happening much, much, much faster. And in tumor cells, when they divide, there's a lot of cells that are essentially not successful. So a lot of cells, when they're dividing, 
they die. So for example, if you get if you get a tumor cell that that splits into two cells and one cell gets extra copies of some of the chromosomes and the other cell is missing copies of those chromosomes, the cell that's missing some of the copies could possibly not be viable. And the cell that got extras could possibly be sort of like a Superman. Um, it's obviously a sort of a cartoony way to think about it, but if you do it that way and you think about it that way, there's so many cells that are changing and dividing uh, that they really have a much better chance to to become uh, so successful, for lack of a better word. Yeah, it's just like it seems like the ultimate form of evolution. And it, it also, I mean, I'm just anthropomorphizing it, but it seems like cancer is kind of like a life form. You know, it resists, it resists death, it adapts, it uh, wants to spread and, you know, make more of itself. It, it seems, it's weird. It just seems to have all those yeah. characteristics of life itself. In essence, yeah. In a lot of ways, that's true. All right. Well, sorry for the endless speculation, but the, so, that's okay. So, over this next year, what are what are some of the things that you you know to recap? What are you going to be looking at over the next year, and what what effects do you hope to uh, figure out? We are specifically looking at whether the ketogenic diet in animals and um, and ketones in in the laboratory cells that we grow uh, sensitize to radiation, sensitized to some of the chemotherapies that are being used for these tumors. Um, these, again, are some of the really nasty pediatric tumors. We want to look at how they're doing that, so looking at um, some of the epigenetic changes that happen. Uh, if ketones or the ketogenic diet can be used to sensitize some of these tumors to some newer therapies even, for example, uh, that would be huge because then then it would be taken into the clinic. The ketogenic diet is, is basically a not non-toxic type of therapy. And if if it can be taken into the clinic to work along with the standard of care for the various pediatric tumors, I think that could that could be huge. So we're we're focusing on pediatric brain tumors to see if this is the case. How how do you perceive that the uh the ketogenic diet or this kind of intervention is perceived by the medical industry? Are they resisting it? Are they welcoming it? Uh, you know, are they saying, oh it's not a drug, so you know we don't even want to think about it. I mean, what are you seeing? All of the above. I've seen both. I've seen physicians that um, are starting to embrace it. So uh, I was at the Baron Neurological Institute for 28 years. And uh, when I started to work on this, everybody sort of poo-pooed it. And then there was a patient that that heard about it from a friend of hers. And it turns out she also knew me. Uh, she, she got this uh, brain tumor diagnosis and she came to my office and spoke to me went on the diet and did so well that some of the clinicians turned around and said, whoa, this is really looking good. Maybe we should look at this. And then one of the neurosurgeons there, a fabulous neurosurgeon there named Dr. Chris Smith, he's now totally on board with it. He wants all his patients doing it. He's very much on board with it. And he's a top neurosurgeon, like really, you know, the top one there, I think, um, for brain tumors. So you've got some of those physicians that are starting to embrace it. But then you've also got some, I get contacted by patients all the time. And the first thing I have to do is remind them that I'm not a clinician and and then try to help them find some of the dietitians or whatever that can help you, that can help them. But many times I'm told, oh, our, you know, our doctor said, don't try it. Our doctor said it's awful. Our doctor said it won't help. Uh, so I think it's slowly becoming more popular. It was very, very non-accepted, very, very unaccepted. Uh, because it's gotten more popular in the lay public with respect to weight loss and sports enhancement and things like that, it's becoming less difficult to do. 
which is, is kind of nice because there's more things available for people. And more and more physicians are starting to see things. The patients are saying, we're going to do it anyway. And more, physici- more and more physicians are starting to see some of the benefits. So I think it's very, very slowly gaining um, acceptance. But there's still lots of people out there that don't believe it. Yeah. Hmm. Um, any uh, anecdotal evidence of people that use exogenous ketones? No, I have no it? anecdotal evidence about exogenous ketones in cancer. Uh, you might want to talk to Dr. Angela Poff for that. She's awesome. She'd be a fabulous person for you to have on, on your uh, podcast. And, um, I spoke to her once, but be... I, didn't know, I didn't know everything I should have asked her, so I'll have to have her again. Yeah. <laughs> you should definitely have her again. She's fantastic. Uh, but I think she'd probably be the best one to answer that about exogenous ketones uh, with people with cancer. Okay. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate coming on. What's the best way for folks to get in contact and to find out more about what you're doing? Probably just to look me up online. That's probably the easiest thing. So it's Adrian C. Sheck. I use my middle initial. And number of the talks I've given are available on YouTube uh, so they can actually... It's it's a lot easier to understand it when you can see the pictures. Um, I'm a cartoon yeah. person in my head, so uh, so that's much easier. And um, that, that's probably the best way. If anybody wants to... Con- Honestly, um, it's probably not efficient for them to email me and say, what are you doing? <laughs> because the best way to find that out is kind of online. Uh, if they want to yeah. donate to the work, uh, Phoenix Children's Hospital, uh, Phoenix Children's Foundation. It's a nonprofit, obviously, and they, they can uh, say they want to donate to the work, use my name. They can look up Phoenix Children's Foundation online in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, and that'll get right. them to that. So that's, that's probably right. the, the best way. Well, that's great. Well, Adrian, thanks so much. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Sure. My pleasure. Have a good day. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.